Thanks, Rachel. Um, Lauren mentioned that half of Belfast is sick and my household is making up for like a quarter of that. Uh, I just left a sea of tears and snot this morning, so it's good. It was a good fun night last night. Um, this morning we're in uh, Psalm 131, as Rachel uh, said. She's right. It is one of the most beautiful Psalms. Um, and it's something that I think that maybe just generationally or culturally or, or just this kind of time that we're in, uh, we really, really need to hear this. Um, thingy, uh, thingy. Charles Spurgeon. Um, he, oh, I have to meet him in heaven someday. Oh, he would kick my butt for that. He said, he said, this is the, it's, it's one of the shortest Psalms to read, but one of the most long, uh, one of the longest to learn. Um, and I think he's right. Um, but just let me recap where we've been. We've been going through these Psalms of Ascent, um, which are these kind of 15 Psalms in the book of Psalms. Um, and they are Psalms that the, the people of Israel, the, the ancient people of God, would have used as they were pilgrimaging back to Jerusalem. So we've seen how uh, three times a year they had to go back to the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, uh, for these festivals. Now the festivals weren't just, you know, it wasn't like Glastonbury or something. It was actually to go and to worship God. Because in those days... God lived in one place on earth. He dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem. That's where his presence was. And so to, to encounter God and worship him truly, you had to go to Jerusalem. And so they were told to three times a year, go back there um, and to, to worship God in this way. So they went for Passover, which is when they remembered that God had delivered them out of Egypt. And essentially, that's when they were born as the people of God, when he, he, he took them out of slavery. When he rescued them, that's when they became his people. And they went back for Passover to remember that God saves. And then they, they went for the, the, the festival of Pentecost, right? Um, or the festival of weeks, as it's called in English. And that was when they remembered that uh, God gave them the law. So you might have heard the story of uh, the Mount, Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, the Golden Calf, all of that kind of stuff. God gave them this law, and that was really uh, God saying, I've rescued you. You're now my people, so you should live like this. This is the best way you're going to, going to have, have, have your best life if you follow me. And they would go back to remember that. And then the third thing they would remember, and that was a way of remembering that God reigns. And then the third time they would go back would be for the festival of tabernacle or, tabernacles or booths. And that was at the end of the harvest. So every year, they, the, the, the farmers would, would, would put up these little booths that they would wait to bring in their harvest. And it was a way of remembering that, that God provides. So really, three times a year, they had to go and uh, worship God in this way. But it wasn't just like a physical pilgrimage. They weren't just going to Jerusalem because of a cool place to go to. They were going because that's where the presence of God dwelled. That's where God lived, if you want to put it that way. And so, in a sense, when they were journeying on these, on these journeys back to Jerusalem three times a year, and they were singing these 15 songs, they weren't just pilgrimaging to a physical place. They were journeying to God himself. They were, they were pilgrimaging to the heart of God. And that's why at the start of this year, it feels like New Year was a long time ago, doesn't it? But that's why at the start of this year, we started this series as we symbolically set out on a pilgrimage this year towards God, if you like. We're all on a journey through life, right? We're all on a pilgrimage. Uh, if you're a Christian, then we're on a journey towards glory. Um, and symbolically, we want to sing these songs with the ancient people and see uh, how we are to live as the people of God. <coughs> Um, so let me, let me just pray for us, um, and, then, and then we can get stuck into Psalm 131. Heavenly Father, we need your help 
we confess that we're weak. Uh, we confess that we're distracted. Um, and we need your help to understand uh, what you have to say for us this morning. Uh, Lord, we want to be close to your heart. We want to be close to you. And just as those ancient people pilgrimaged to you thousands of years ago, Lord, we want to pilgrimage closer to you this morning. So um, by your spirit, just come and, and uh, reveal what this psalm is saying to us this morning, that we might be changed and grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to start by saying... My, uh, my uncle James, he's passed away now, but he had the most incredible garden, right? So he had, I couldn't even tell you all the things he grew, but it was, he had potatoes, leeks, onions, like loads of vegetables. He had raspberries, gooseberries, strawberries, like so many strawberries. Like in the summertime, you go to his house and you would get strawberries and ice cream because he had just so many strawberries. He had apples and pears. He pretty much had an orchard, um, but he, it was just an incredible garden. But the, his favorite thing to grow wasn't anything you could eat, it was roses. And he had over a hundred different types of rose, hundred different breeds, varieties, I don't know how you would say that, of ro- roses in his garden. So if you go there in the summertime, it's just like a sea of color, just like big blossoms everywhere. And I remember like I spent so much of my time there as a young child and, and there would just be roses anywhere. But you couldn't really, it wasn't the kind of garden you could play football in because you might destroy the roses. So... You had to go into the field to play football. But if you went back to his garden in, like now, this time of year, in the middle of winter, what you would see would be what looked like just a bunch of sticks growing out of the ground. There was nothing there. And what he would do at the end of every summer, when all the blossoms had died, he would prune these roses right back. Like, you'd think he had killed them, right? You'd think it was, there was nothing there. You would think, how is this ever going to grow again? It looked horrible. But... There was something very important in that process that he had to do that. So when I heard him explain this, um, if, if, if the branches, is that what they're called in roses? Stems? I don't know. Who am I, a gardener? Monty Don? I do like Monty Don, though. Anyway, Monty Don. There you go. But the further the, the, further the blossom is from the root, the weaker the blossom's going to be. The further the blossom is from the root, so if you let it grow and don't prune it every year, you may have a really, really big rose bush but you're going to have weaker and less colorful and less vibrant flowers. And so the pruning process actually becomes this really, really important thing. The plant that's pruned is healthier for it. And Psalm 131, I think, is a pruning psalm. It's about God pruning and cutting away things in our lives so that we can be healthier for it. And I think that this psalm has a lot to say to us as Christians. Who in this room could say that they don't need correction in their lives? If, if you do, you're, you know, you're probably lying to yourself, misguided. We need God to keep cutting away the wild growth. We need God to keep uh, working away at us so that we can have healthy growth. And um, Jesus talked about this idea too, didn't he? He uses this kind of pruning language how God works in our lives to make us more like him and make us healthier. In John 15, he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the, var- the farmer and he cuts away every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. But every, every branch that does bear grapes, he prunes back so that it will bear more fruit. 
So it's actually the healthy branches that he cuts back so that they can bear even more fruit. And in this psalm, we see David responding to the Lord, kind of pruning his heart and pruning his life and pruning his behavior. We see a man who knows the Lord intimately to the point where he can take joy from the pruning process. Say, trying that fast. Pruning process. We see a man who is content just to be in the presence of God. A man who places his hope in God and then encourages other people to do the same thing. I think, as I was reading this, there was three kind of words that I think characterize this psalm, but even more than that for us, I think these three words characterize the life of a Christian. They are humility, we're going to see that in verse 1. Confidence, we're going to see that in verse 2. And then hope, we're going to see that in verse 3. Humility, confidence, hope. These are the the markers. These are the characteristics of what a Christian should be. These are how uh, how we should approach our lives. These are how we should walk in life. With humility, with confidence, and with hope. So in many ways, this psalm, short as it is, is one of the most important pieces of scripture. Because I think that it's a guide for our lives. How to live as, as followers of Jesus. So let's look at verse 1, humility. And our lesson here is humility. We need to walk in the right way. Keep your Bible open if you have it. Um, Look at verse 1. And David says this. David, by the way, if you don't know, David was the king of the nation of Israel back then. Um, And he was a good king who loved God. And he wrote many, many uh, psalms and did many great things to lead people closer to the Lord. Um, David says this in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, I think that these uh, few lines are probably really difficult for us to get our heads around. I think it's easy for us to understand what they mean, what the words mean, but for us to really understand and comprehend what the psalm is communicating here is really difficult. And I'll come back to that. So firstly, what do they mean? Well, what he's saying here is basically like, Lord, I haven't got too big for my boots. Lord, I know my place. I know that you're God and I'm not. And this is the way I'm going to live my life. He's talking about humility. He's talking about his own humility. And he has no problem saying to the Lord, Lord, I, I, I live a humble life. Lord, I do, I do put you in your rightful place and put me in my rightful place. He said, my, my heart isn't lifted up. He doesn't have a proud heart, a proud attitude. The same Hebrew expression here in the ancient language of Hebrew that's used for my heart is not lifted up is used elsewhere to say, uh, to translate it a proud heart. He's saying, I don't have a proud heart. And the same idea when he says, my eyes are not raised too high. This is one, this is one of the ways that the Bible talks about pride. Someone who has got haughty eyes is proud and arrogant. You see that in, in Proverbs and in Psalm. So that's what the words mean. The words mean, Lord, uh, I'm not too big for my boots. You're God and I'm not. And that's how I'm going to live. But why is this so difficult for us to get our heads around? What it really should say is, why is this so difficult for us to apply this to our lives? Well, let me explain it like this. So I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say something like, this is the hardest time it's ever been to be a Christian. Have Have you ever come across people saying that? It's harder now to be a Christian than it's ever been. Well, I just want to say, that's rubbish. <laughs> I mean, a couple thousand years ago, our brothers and sisters were getting thrown to lions. I'm not getting thrown to any lions. But usually, I think that if you look through history, 
church history, every generation or two or, or every kind of period of history feels that way. They feel that there's a particular difficulty or obstacle in the way of following Jesus that, that is specific to their culture and their time. And the truth is that, that every generation and every location is going to have its own particular set of difficulties in following Jesus, right? And this usually happens when a really kind of old temptation or an old evil becomes celebrated and honored as something good. And even, uh, even becomes a normal way of life. Something that we are expected to do. And every time this happens through history, the church has to just trust God and choose the way that leads to life. That choose his way over the way the world is telling us to live. For example, the early Christians in the Roman Empire, so you can read about this in the book of Acts and and all through the New Testament, uh, they were persecuted because the culturally normal thing to do was to worship the emperor as a god. You were to worship the emperor. We have no king but Caesar. That was, the, that, was the, that was the cry. But the church were persecuted because they said, no, we can't worship a man because we worship the true and only one living God. And that kind of brings us back. This was the particular, the particular difficulty in that time, one of them anyway. And that brings us back to why this psalm is so hard for us to apply to our lives. It's hard for us to comprehend and apply and get our heads around because there's maybe, um, maybe nothing more celebrated in our society today than pride and ambition. And I, I think if you look at various kind of cultural trends that are happening and maybe some conversations you've had with people and things that come up in the media and social media especially, um, I think a lot, of, a lot of these things stem from these two things, pride and ambition. Sometimes it's subtly and sometimes it's overtly. But think about it, right? Our culture rewards ambition and pride. And pride. So the narratives driving society today uh, are things like, actually, the narrative is driving the way people think about themselves and their identity, their, their, their sexuality, their gender, their careers. All these things are stuff like, don't let anyone tell you who you are. You can be anything you want to be. Don't let anyone stand in your way. Do what you need to do to get ahead. You, you know, this is who I am, and if you don't like it, you can go to hell. Essentially, that's the driving narrative of our culture today. But this psalm is the, the absolute opposite of that, isn't it? And when I, when I put it explicitly and clearly like that, it sounds awful. We recognize it. We go, oh yeah, that does sound awful. I don't want to be like that. But the truth is that we've grown up in this system. We've been bred into this system. We've been ingrained in it so long that actually most of our attitudes follow the same line. It's actually sold. Pride is sold to us as a morally right way to live. Like if you're not proud of who you are, then what's wrong with you? It's good that you should be proud. Eugene Peterson, uh, just he just, for me, I don't know if you've ever read much of his stuff, but you should. Just a really humble guy embodies a lot of this, Sam. But he says this, it's difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it's held up on every side as virtue, urged as profitable and rewarded as an achievement. So maybe you're in a job right now where uh, you, know, you don't make as much money as you'd like to or, or certainly you spend time with your friends and they're all earning more money than you. And then you start to think, well, 
I'm the same age as them. I have the same education level as them. Why am I not making as much money as them? How come they can afford to go on nice holidays and I can't? Or how come they can afford to have a a nice new car and I I can't? Or whatever it is. Whatever that thing is for you. And then that kind of becomes, well, hang on. I could be making as much money as them. And then that slowly becomes, no, I should be making as much money as them. I should have what they have. In fact, I should have more than they have. And it becomes, actually, I deserve this. Until finally, I'm going to make this happen and nothing is going to stand in my way and screw anyone who gets in my way. And it's not a new thing either. Pride is the very thing that caused human beings to be thrown out of the presence of God in the first place. Adam and Eve in the garden, back in in the book of Genesis, They took things into their own hands. They decided, hang on a minute, we deserve to be God. They took what was there in front of them, not because they needed it, because all their needs were already met. They took it, not because they needed it, because they wanted it, and it was there. It's the oldest sin in the book, and now it's delivered to us not only as attractive, but as the right thing to do. And so how on earth will we ever naturally fall into this attitude of, of, of not having a proud heart and, and, and to not having proud eyes? Now, don't get me wrong, because I'm not talking about healthy ambition. Healthy ambition is a good thing. It's a God-given thing, right? And we need to be careful, because actually the two can sometimes appear very similar, especially when pride is given to us in a way that's, that seem, seems attractive and seems to be morally right. A biblical ambition looks at the created world, uh, everything around us, and says, there actually must be more than this. This isn't enough. I actually want to be with the creator. I'm striving uh, for, for the best that God has for me. Like, like Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. That's what biblical ambition looks like. So, so don't, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying there's... A, the, there's nothing wrong with ambition as long as your ambition is in the right place. And pride and empty ambition is the opposite of this. See, there's a way that God designed us to live, right? And when we take ourselves out of God's design and try to be something we're not, it goes really, really, really badly for us. Like, like a fish that's designed to live in water. And if you take it out of fish, if you take it out of water, what's going to happen? It's going to die. And so it is for us if we try to live outside the way that God has for us to live. One way of putting this is uh, our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation. Our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation. But our hearts don't like this, do they? We don't like hearing it because it means accepting that somebody or something outside of us knows, knows better for us, knows what's best for us better than we do, and we don't like that. We reject God, not because he's mean or cruel or anything like that. Those are the names we put on him. But actually it's because to accept God means accepting that somebody outside of me knows what's better for me. And I fundamentally hate that and reject that at the very core of my being. In other words, living in the way that God created us to live requires humility. Eugene Peterson said this as well. 
He says, being a Christian means accepting the terms of creation, accepting God as our maker and growing day by day into an increasingly glorious creature in Christ. Isn't that amazing? And the apostle Peter knew this as well. Now, it took him a long, long time to learn it. But eventually, after following Jesus for a while and then denying Jesus for a while and then following Jesus again, and finally, trusting Jesus, he knew the secret of life is walking in humility with God. Knowing that God is God and I'm not. And this is what he says in, his, in Peter's letter to the churches. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What does that mean? It means that you may not understand why you are where you are right now, but that's okay because God has put you there so that you will become more like Jesus. So instead of trying to figure it all out and worrying about it all the time, give all of those things to God and trust him with it all because he cares for you and someday you will be honored with Jesus in the kingdom of God. This is what David means at the end of verse one when he says this. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now he's not saying, well, I'm not going to try astrophysics or I'm not going to try, you know, you, you know, whatever. I'm not going to try exploring the world. He's not saying those things. What he's saying is that there's things that, that only God can understand. I have to know my place. Otherwise, I'm just going to be discontent for the rest of my life. Listen, if you're going to have any level of comfort and contentment as a Christian, there's two things you need to understand. Firstly, there's some things that only God can comprehend. And secondly, one of those things is how deeply he cares for you. You need to understand that some, there are some things that only God can comprehend. And one of those things that only God can comprehend is how much he cares for you. And when we get worried about, I don't understand why this is happening, and there's things outside of my control and things outside of my understanding, we need to remember the second one, that yes, that's true, but you'll also never understand how much God cares for you. So why would you worry? You may not understand why you are, why you are where you are right now, but God cares for you, and he has you right where you're supposed to be. He cares about you more than you could ever understand. Think about it. Your father loves you so much that he gave his own son to die for you. So why do you think that, that he would let you go through something that wasn't for your good? Why would he let you go through something that was just for fun? Or why would he let you go through something that, that was like meaningless pain or meaningless suffering? He wouldn't, he wouldn't do that because he's already given his, of himself. He's already sacrificed himself to be with you. God sacrificed himself to save you from destruction. And this proves that he is entirely for you. So you can freely just humble yourself and be like, God, you're God and I'm not. And this is hugely freeing. It gives us freedom and confidence, right? See, the world would have us believe, a lot of, I think a lot of our understanding, our natural understanding or, or perceived understanding of, of humility is that humility is the same as weakness, that somehow it's weakness, right? That, that putting other people ahead of ourselves is foolish or even weak. And no one wants to be weak. Now, that, that following what someone other than yourself says is best for your life is madness. 
That somehow, if, if you feel like this, you lack the confidence to be who you really are. And, and as we've already seen, that's one of the biggest faux pas in, in the world that we live in. But the truth is that humility isn't a lack of confidence. Humility is having confidence in the right place. Pride is confidence in yourself. Humility is confidence in God. And this brings us to verse 2. And we're going to see that confidence is trust in the right person. Look at verse 2 here with me again. He says, so he's humbled himself. He said, my eyes aren't lifted up. My, my, my heart isn't lifted up. I'm, I'm not, I know there's things outside of my understanding. In verse 2 he says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And the first thing here to notice is that the, he, he, the focus is on his soul, right? It's the deepest part of his being. His deepest inner self is content, satisfied. The humility of, that he has in verse one has led to this deep com- comfort and, 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 and contentment. He trusts the Lord. He's walking in, in God's ways. He knows that God's ways are the best way to live. And he knows that there are things that only God can comprehend. And he knows that God cares about him. And as a result, he's deeply contented. He's calm and quiet. Why? Because the kind of humility that he has is, is firm confidence in God. This is somebody that knows God. But the second thing to notice here is that, that he likens himself to a weaned child. Not a child that's still breastfeeding. Not a, not a child that, that still relies on his mom's milk. But, but a child that's been weaned. And there's a big, big difference. When Abigail, our daughter, uh, the snot machine. Um, <laughs> well, she is at the minute. When she was born, literally, as soon as she, uh, graphic warning, as soon as she came out, she was hungry. And she's pretty much been hungry ever since. But um, I have this video of her two minutes old and she's like sucking the air, <laughs> trying to get some food. And her instinct was to look for her mom. And of course, Hilly's like, give me a break. I've already done a lot of work here. Um, but, but her instinct was look for her mom because only her mom can give her the satisfaction of her needs, right? This is what infants do. An unwilled child only appreciates its mom for what the mom can give her. The comfort a newborn baby gets from her mom is, is the comfort of having her immediate needs met. But a weaned child, what he says here, that isn't like that. A weaned child grows out of that stage and, and grows into a place where she, she appreciates her mom just because of who her mom is. The weaning process has taught her that, that, that her mom is more than just milk. And now Abigail is a year old, right? And she gets joy from being in her mom's arms. They laugh together. They, they, they play together. They, they do uh, nursery rhymes together. They cuddle together. There's a relationship there because Abigail has learned that even though it's difficult to not have her mom at her beck and call all the time and, and, and not always instantly have her, her uh, physical and immediate needs met, her mom deeply cares for her. And actually her mom's pretty great for who she is. Of course, 
The weaned child mother still feeds her and clothes for her and cleans her and cares for her. But there's more to the relationship than just these things. The weaned child longs to be with her mom just for the sake of being with her. And so the weaned child can just, like this verse says, just sit and relax in her mother's presence, just in her arms. Just because, because she loves her mom. And this is what David is talking about here in his relationship with God. He's learned that his relationship with God isn't just about what God gives him. His relationship is about enjoying who God is. This is why he can be calm and quiet in the presence of his father. He can, in humility, accept his circumstances, knowing confidently that his needs are going to be met and that God cares for him. And when we first become Christians, we're kind of like the infant, right? We're like the unweaned baby. What's the, I don't know what the word is for unweaned, so I'll just say unweaned. There's a sense in which that, that we want Jesus just for what he can give us, and that's good and right, right? We, at the start, we recognize that we, we, we recognize our need of a savior, and then we run into his arms because only he can satisfy that need, and that's good and right. But it doesn't stay that way. We grow and we learn and we mature and we begin to learn just how beautiful Jesus is. We find ourselves delighting in him just because of how good he is. Not, not because of what he can give us. And so in every circumstance, we, we, we see and we know that Jesus is better than, than, than our career. He's better than our relationships. He's better than money. He's better than sex. He's better than power. He's, he's better than any comfort. Jesus is better in everything. And this is what we strive for. We want more of God, not because of what he does, but because of who he is. We long just to delight in him. And by the way, if you don't feel that way, and I, I, I'll be the first to say that, that much of the time I don't feel that way. Much of the time my prayer is more like, Lord, I really need you to come through for me here. I need you to deliver this thing that I really want. But there's a command, a command in the Bible. Psalm 37 in the Old Testament, delight yourself for the Lord. That's an imperative. That's a go and do this. The same in Philippians 4. Philippians 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. We're literally told to delight in God. This is something we need to strive after. We as Christians need to delight in God just as the, un, just as the weaned child delights in being in the, the presence of, his mom, of her mom. And this in turn allows us to be humble and accept our circumstances, good or bad. When we recognize how good God is and we're living in the way that he's designed us to live, we have peace. No matter what's happening. Peace that passes understanding. You know, I just said in Philippians, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, straight after that, he goes on to say that the result is peace that passes understanding. This is what God has promised for us if, if, if we just walk humbly before him. Just this last week, I saw this lived out in the lives of two of my closest friends. Going into a situation of complete unknown and, and a painful situation. I'm full of worry. But what did they do? They, I just saw these people like trust God so much. And they humbled themselves and they said, Lord, we don't understand why this is happening right now, but we know that you do and that's enough because you're good. And we know that you care for us. And then the result was they were like the winged child. They had, they were, they had quiet and calm souls. 
and he had peace that, that frankly you just shouldn't have in a situation like that and sometimes God makes us go through hard things to get us to this point that's how much he loves us see the weaning process actually getting the baby off milk that, I mean that's, that's not an easy task right anyone who's had children will tell you that it's hard work it's full of sleepless nights I'm wondering why the heck you had kids in the first place. <laughs> but it's worth it in the end. The child needs to be weaned, right? It'd be unhealthy if a, if a baby was an adult and still feeding from its mom. That would be weird. <coughs> unhealthy. And just like the prune the rosebush, the, the process produces healthier flowers. And this is what God does with us. Um, last week... Uh, or I can't remember, a couple of weeks ago I heard Steve Timmis saying this. He said, God loves you so much that there is nothing he wouldn't do to make you more like Jesus. That's how much he loves you. This is what the weaning process, this is what the pruning is all about. To bring us into this, this place of contentment, knowing that God is good. Not based on our circumstances, but based on the unshakable faithfulness of God. Because he is always faithful, Right? You can answer that if you want to. <laughs> God is faithful. Amen. And contentment comes from him, not from us. So you might get confused when he's like, ah, I have calmed my soul. I've done this. I've done that. He's not saying that, that his uh, calmness and contentment comes from him. He doesn't mean that he's the source of his joy and his calm. He, like the, uh, the weaned baby who's not drinking milk anymore, it's not curled up in front of a mirror going, oh wow, this is such comfort and presence. It's not like that at all. What he means is, he means God, just like the mother, is his peace. God is my calmness. God is my contentment. Uh, but I crawled up into the father's lap. I've sought this. I wanted this. I needed this and I pursued this. I haven't produced it, but I pursued it. Because this is something that we pursue. Paul, when he's in the New Testament, he's writing his letter to the church in Corinth. He says, that, listen, I wanted to give you solid food, but you're acting like babies, so I had to give you milk. And you should want to mature in Jesus. That's kind of one of the big themes of the whole letter. And we should too. We shouldn't be satisfied with, with, with getting milk. We want to mature. We want to get to the point where we enjoy Jesus just for how lovely and delightful he is. But that involves letting God lead, lead us through the, the winning process and through the pruning. And through this we become more and more like Jesus. Who, who walked in perfect humility. Who had perfect contentment with the Father. So here's the challenge for us this morning. I want, I want you to ask yourself, just take stock of this and, and consider it for yourself. Are, are, are you like a weaned child who just desires to be with God because of who God is? Or are you like a nursing infant? Do you seek God? In other words, do you seek God for what he can give you more than seeking him for who he is? And the psalm shows us that what's available to us, confidence in the right persons, a confidence that, that gives us contentment that's rooted not in our circumstances, but in God. He never changes in his utter commitment to us in Jesus.
So humility, we walk in the right way. Confidence, verse two, we trust the right person. And then finally in verse three, we see uh, we have hope when we look to the right future. Look at verse three with me. He says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. See, it was the role of the king of Israel uh, to know God deeply and then to live his way as an example to the people. And so, so David, being a good king, he's doing these things. And as he considers this relationship he has with God, he says, everybody else, come and get in on this. You, can, you, can be, you should do this too because this is great and this is the way we're supposed to live and it's for our benefit and our joy. He just can't keep it to himself. He calls the people of God to live this way. I've found this way of life. You need it too. Trusting in God is good. Walk in the peace and contentment that comes from knowing God. And this is the calling that God has given to us as Christians this morning too. His hope is in God. And it's not just hope that that God will solve whatever difficulty that we find ourselves in right now. It's hope Look at the last word of the psalm, forevermore. It's a lasting hope. It's a hope without end. It's, it's an eternal hope. It's a hope that looks beyond our immediate circumstances into eternity. Isn't that incredible? This is why we can have confidence in God. Our future is secure, and, and so no matter what we're going through right now, it's only temporary. Our future is far better than anything we could ever imagine. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. This, the, the, I mean, I don't know why, but 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 have kind of been, I don't know, just like spoken about a lot in our church recently. I do know why. But uh, these two verses said this. So we do not lose heart. Uh, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Ah, light, momentary, eternal weight. In other words, whatever pruning or, or winning process you've got going on right now, it's totally worth it because why? God is preparing, he's using that to prepare you for glory. Isn't that incredible? And this is the path of, this is the example of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? Glory comes through suffering. And someday when we are in glory, Maybe a million years from now, if I don't think it'll work like that in years, but if we can look back, these times of pruning are just going to seem like an instant. They're going to seem uh, completely insignificant in, in the time sense because they only last for an instant. But I want to ask, how can we know this for sure? During our Advent series, uh, we looked at what the Bible says about hope, right? In Psalm 130. In the Bible, hope isn't the same as optimism. Hopes, it's not just hoping that things might get better. It's not just taking a chance in the future that somehow things might work out for the best. Like, I hope I really get the exam results I need. Or, um, I hope I get good news from the doctor. It's not that kind of thing. In, In the Bible, hope is way more than this. You see, the hope of the Bible has a focus. It's the focal point of history. The salvation that's mentioned in the Old Testament, this hope that's mentioned here, it's all pointing to one person. Our hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. You see, you don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve any of this. 
None of us do. We'd all walked away from God. We'd all made ourselves God. We'd all, we'd all thought that we didn't need anyone to tell us how to run our lives and that we could do it better. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says that, that we were like sheep who had gone wandering off out of the shepherd's care and choosing our own way. And listen, if God hadn't intervened, we would still be on, on that path, a path of pride, and we'd be worrying about stuff, chasing after empty, meaningless stuff, not humility and confidence and freedom. And if we had continued on that path, it would have ultimately led to our destruction, our permanent destruction. But God did intervene, didn't he? God loves us. He made us because he loves us. And and because he made us, he loves us. And, And because of that great love, the great love with which he loved us, the Bible tells us, how could he ever let us wander off down a path towards destruction? Even even a human parent. Even a fairly average human parent is going to stop their child from pursuing things that are going to destroy their lives. So how much more would God, the original, the original parent, the original father, how much more would he not intervene for us? This is why Jesus came. This is why the Son of God took on flesh, became a human being. And as a man, we see that he walked in perfect humility, didn't he? He showed us what it looks like to live in humility, walking in the right way, always putting God's will before his own and always putting the needs of others before his own. Philippians 2 says that that Jesus emptied himself, as in he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. He became a servant to all, uh, being born in the likeness of man, being born as one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Listen, if you want to know what real humility looks like, you have to look to the cross of Jesus. That's what it really means to put other people's needs before yourself. That's what it really means to be obedient to God. That's what it meant for Jesus to live in humility was to give up his life and die. And not only humility, he had perfect confidence, didn't he? He trusted the right person. He accepted that the plan that God had for his life and he followed it. Not not just kind of half-heartedly or willingly, but gladly. Hebrews says that it was because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He endured the cross gladly for you and for me. Because he knew this this is what was needed for us to be reconciled to God and be brought back to God. But there's an even greater point to all this. Excuse me. Sometimes we just think that, that Jesus, uh, we treat Jesus more of like our example, don't we? Just like, oh yeah, um, Jesus just came to, to show us the way to live. But, but the point is, Jesus didn't come to show us how to live. He didn't come to show us the way. He came to be the way. Jesus didn't just come to show us the way he came to be the way. You see, without Jesus dying for us and taking the results of our sin on himself, we could never have access to any of this. We took pride in ourselves and he carried out the ultimate act of humility. We doubted God and rejected him, but he had the ultimate confidence in God. We rejected God and so there was no way that we could ever find contentment. How could we? The things of the world just don't give us contentment. 
But through trusting in Jesus, uh, in all that he is, and all that he has done, we can have the calmness and quietness of a weaned child in the arms of her mother. Because of Jesus, we can crawl up into our father's lap and just sit there, enjoying his presence, knowing that he has us. Do you know that God has you? He has you. He cares for you. He secured your future. And fear and doubt and worry, well, those things aren't needed anymore. So finally, let me ask this question. What does it mean for us to live a life characterized by humility, confidence, and hope? What does it look like? What does a a life uh, full of humility, confidence, and hope look like? It looks like this. It looks like accepting that God knows best and wants the best for us. So we don't live for our own desires. We live the way God calls us to. We put the needs of others before our own. So we're humble. It looks like having confidence in the goodness of God so we can just rest in him. It means that we can stop striving and worrying. No matter what our circumstances, we trust that God is good and he loves us and he'll never fail us. And so we're confident. And it means that we don't lose hope. This kind of life looks like a life that doesn't lose hope because our hope is not in things that might or may, might not happen to us in this life. Our hope is in God who has secured our future. And we can only do any of this because of Jesus who came not just to show us the way but to be the way. He's our example and our redeemer. The only way you could ever walk in humility or have confidence in God or even know that you needed to do these things is because of Jesus. He's our example and our redeemer. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, may we just uh, pursue a life of crawling into your lap and enjoying you for who you are. Lord, we know and trust that you provide all our needs and that you satisfy and you look after us and you care for us. Lord, I pray that we would have more of a life of of enjoying your presence, enjoying you for who you are, Lord. May we have a deep sense, even as we come to the table now, may we have a deep sense of of just um, being in your presence and that that's good. Uh, Lord, forgive us for the times that we just uh, put other secondary things as more important. Forgive us, Lord, when we're full of like empty pride and, and ambition over the wrong things. Uh, help us, Lord, to have a focus that's on you. Help us, Lord, as individuals and as a family, as, as a church, um, to constantly just to seek to delight in you, Lord. Sometimes we just think it's so hard, Father. Help us. We need to see that it's easy. It's easy to delight in you because you are good and you're for us and you love us. Help us today and, and help us. Um, as we leave this place today, Lord Jesus. Amen.